0: A royalist is a person who believes that absolute governing power should be given to one king. If I had told you that I'm a royalist and I think that July 4th is treasonous, our country's independence was a big mistake, and that our allegiance should have remained with King George III, you'd all think I was crazy, right? As Americans, we love our self-governance. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. Thomas Jefferson said, I was much an enemy to monarchies before I came to Europe. I am 10,000 times more so since I have seen what they are. There is scarcely an evil known in these countries which may not be traced to their king as its source, nor a good which is not derived from the small fibers of republicanism existing among them. Self-governance is part of the ethos of the United States. Most Americans cringe at the idea of one sovereign ruler governing our country, and that can be an obstacle uh, for Americans in knowing God and delighting in His absolute sovereignty. I'm very grateful that my country is a constitutional republic and not a monarchy. You probably are too. Uh, But all Christians, in their heart of hearts, are devout royalists. As a Christian, your greatest delight is one person possessing absolute and unlimited power over you to govern your thoughts, feelings, and choices, to govern your dating and weekend plans and screen time, to govern your marriage, parenting, and friendships, to govern your education, career path and success to govern your money, possessions, and giving, to govern everything in your life. Royalism is not a threat to you, brothers and sisters. It is your greatest blessing. What greater blessing is there than to live joyfully beneath the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, your king, and find his supremacy and divine law good news? Not a threat, not a burden, good news. Brothers and sisters, royalism is central to the gospel. As we continue in Matthew, we need to keep this in mind. The Old Testament plays a huge role in Matthew, not a hug role in Matthew, if you're following the notes, but a huge role in Matthew. Uh, Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot, and, and to make the case that Jesus Christ is good news. My covenant theology series, and particularly the Davidic covenant, should help you make much better sense of Matthew and the whole redemption story because Matthew begins his gospel with the Davidic king motif and talks about royalism throughout his gospel. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is sometimes hard to understand, but we can't know God apart from the Bible, So we must always strive to understand, to go deeper in order to know God. This this is why continuous and unrelenting preaching and discipleship of the local church is essential for spiritual growth, for your spiritual growth. God has been gracious to give us one story of redemption progressively unfolded throughout the Old and New Testaments. We need all the Bible all the Bible, to understand the gospel and to apply it rightly to our lives. And yet throughout history, religious people have sought to unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian faith. The heretic Marcion demonized the Old Testament uh, in the second century. The Anabaptists trivialized the Old Testament during the Reformation and beyond. Famous pastors are still disparaging the Old Testament today as if it's a distraction From the Christian faith. Last week I mentioned mega uh, pastor or mega church pastor and author Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley believes we should unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament. He, He promotes this not only in his preaching, but in his book titled Irresistible. In his book, Stanley argues that a big problem with modern Christianity is that it relies too much on the Old Testament. He said the problem is, quote, our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. He tells preachers, quote, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? Shockingly, Stanley Uh, even goes so far as to say this, and I quote, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. That comes from one of the most influential evangelical leaders today. Now, scholar Michael Kruger said this about Stanley's view When it comes to presenting the gospel, Stanley has become convinced the Bible, especially the Old Testament, simply gets in the way. Stanley stands against the entire history of the church as well as the theological heritage of the Protestant Reformation. Moreover, as I have argued, he's even out of sync with the Bible itself, end of quote. I want you to think about this. Matthew was an apostle chosen and commissioned by Jesus Christ not only to preach the gospel, but to write the gospel down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If we are to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, why does the apostle Matthew use the Old Testament so much to make the case that Jesus Christ is good news? Matthew uses the Old Testament a lot A lot to explain the gospel to his readers. The Old Testament is an essential and convincing part of the argument for the beauty and supremacy and glory of Jesus Christ the King. Jesus said the Old Testament is about him. The church doesn't need to unhitch from the Old Testament, but try a lot harder to understand what the Old Testament actually means. So let me point out a huge helpful link between Matthew and the Old Testament that I think will help you understand the wise men so much more. Once again, we go to the gospel as it was given in the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. God promised Abraham this, in your offspring, that's talking about Jesus Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And let me add Isaiah 60 verse 3, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The gospel preached in the Old Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is a blessing for the nations. And when we get to Matthew and when we get to the wise men, we see that gospel promise coming true. Dr. Leon Morris noticed three big points in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, each of which we saw uh, in the Covenant Theology series. Number one, Jesus is Lord of all peoples. Number two, the purposes of God cannot be overthrown. And number three, the fulfillment of Scriptures. Jesus is Lord of all peoples. The purposes of God cannot be overthrown and the fulfillment of Scripture. And I've narrowed these three truths down into one Simple, practical point. Just one point to remember. Jesus Christ is King of kings and therefore worthy of your exultant, reverent, and thankful worship. It's pretty simple. When through the eyes of faith You see Jesus in Scripture as He truly is, as the beautiful, sovereign, royal of all royals, then you have no other choice but to bow yourself before Him and worship Him in joy, awe, and gratitude. And if that is not your instinct, not your heart's desire at the hearing of the gospel, then you do not see and comprehend the person and work of Jesus as you should. We'll see in the text today how pagans, pagans with less gospel than you and I have bowed themselves before the King of Kings in joy, awe, and gratitude. How much more, brothers and sisters, should we worship the King with joy, awe, and gratitude knowing what we know today? First, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is a blessing for the nations Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Astonishing. Note where Jesus was born. King David was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is called the city of David. Jews in John 7 said, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was Matthew is continuing to link Jesus Christ to David, to the Davidic covenant in the days of Herod the king. That's an important historic marker, a reference point which puts the birth of Jesus Christ, oddly as it may seem, at around 5 BC. Uh, Several things about Herod. Number one, Herod wasn't Jewish, uh, but he claimed to practice Judaism. Two, Rome appointed Herod king of Judea. So, in the official Roman sense, Herod was king of the Jews. Three, Herod was a jealous, paranoid, and violent narcissist committed to eradicating any threat to his throne. He executed his wife, three of his sons, his grandfather-in-law, his mother-in-law, and his brother-in-law, and he even went so far as to try to execute the king of kings. Four, Herod was evil sadistic, mentally unstable, and eventually tried to commit suicide, uh, but then died of arteriosclerosis. This is what unrepentant sin and guilt does to people. And Jesus was born beneath the reign and rule of Herod, Herod the Great. In verse 1, Matthew once again used the word behold, to alert us to the Magi. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem in search of the child born king of the Jews. Now, who were the Magi and why are they important? Now, here's where we we gotta know. Christmas folklore is unbiblical, okay? Most nativity scenes are unbiblical. Uh, We three kings of Orient are is unbiblical, Uh, As much as we might like Christmas folklore and this particular carol, much of it, we just have to be honest, it contradicts God's word. Uh, First, we don't know how many wise men there were. Maybe three, maybe 12, maybe 40. Second, they weren't kings. They were magi. More on that in a bit. Third, they weren't from the Orient. Uh, Most scholars believe they were from Persia, Arabia, or Babylonia. Now, historically, magi were priests and astrologers who interpreted signs, dreams, and astronomical phenomena. They pursued wisdom, and they were scholars of ancient sacred writings. Now, interestingly, if these wise men were indeed from Babylonia, Israel's exile to Babylon makes it quite possible that these magi were familiar with the Old Testament gospel prophecies. The Magi rolled into Jerusalem and asked verse two, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The the Magi studied stars and and saw a star that alerted them to the birth of Israel's king. In those times, astrological wonders were understood to accompany political events like the birth of a great king. God graciously sought out the Magi through supernatural astronomical phenomena, though I think God's supernatural revelation through, um, they were also familiar, his revelation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, So I think God's supernatural revelation through astronomy and Scripture brought them from the East. It's interesting Numbers 24, 17 prophesied this. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Again, Isaiah 60, verse 3 says, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Intriguing words for the Magi. We don't know for sure, but I think the Magi were not only guided by the star phenomenon, but also by God's sacred Hebrew Scriptures, Notice two things about their inquiry. One, they said, born king of the Jews, not born to be king of the Jews. Dr. Morris noted, they are talking about what he is, not what he will be. Jesus Christ was born king of the Jews. In fact, he was born king of all kings. Now, what's the big deal about pagan magi traveling all that distance from the east to visit Jesus? Here it is. God is graciously bringing the nations to the king of kings to worship and to be blessed. By his infinite grace and in Abrahamic likeness, God sought out pagan astrologers from a distant land and brought them by his supernatural revelation into the presence of the king of kings to worship him. Just as he promised Abraham. God is seeking people from the nations. He is saving people from the nations through his gospel. And he is causing people from the nations by his spirit to worship him with joy and with all and with, with gratitude. Isn't Jesus Christ the king of kings worthy of your exultant and reverent and thankful worship. Second, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, is a perceived threat to self-important and self-righteous people. To blind sinners, Christ's kingship is not a blessing. It's a threat. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why would Herod be troubled at the arrival of the King of kings? Well, Herod was self-important and self-righteous. He loved power. He loved position. He loved prestige all more than God. Therefore, he was jealous. He was paranoid and he was violent at the birth of the child king. When he should have rejoiced, Herod was unrepentant, jealous, and paranoid. Herod interpreted Jesus Christ as a threat to be crushed instead of a blessing to be enjoyed. You know what sin does? It distorts the truth so that the blessing in the truth is hidden. Why was all of Jerusalem troubled? Think about that. That's weird, people. Jerusalem was filled with Jews anticipating this very moment. Jerusalem should have rejoiced at the arrival of the Messiah King, but instead they were troubled along with Herod, maybe because they were focused on earthly politics more than the gospel. I think they were like, if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I think that's kind of where they were coming from. Jump down to verses 7 through 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You're a mean one, Mr. Herod. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Herod. What difference did it make when the star appeared? Well, if Herod knew the age of the child, and if he couldn't find the child, he could at least kill all the children the child's age. Infanticide. Why do people reject Jesus? It's not a lack of evidence. It's not the persuasion of science. It's not logic. It's not better options. People reject Jesus ultimately because he is a threat to their self-importance, to their self-righteousness, to their autonomy. It's simple. People don't want a sovereign king reigning and ruling over all aspects of their life. They want to live how they want to live. They'd rather die doing what they want than relinquish their autonomy and bow before the king in worship. They see Jesus as a threat instead of what he really is, a blessing, a blessing. I wonder, do you bow before Jesus in worship with a big smile on your face and a smile in your heart? Third. Jesus Christ, the king of kings, is God's promised shepherd sent to his people as a blessing. When Samuel anointed David king over Israel, he told David this, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. But then what happened? David failed as a king, He failed, yet many years after David's death and after the split of the great kingdom and after the fall of Israel and Judah, God promised his people through Ezekiel the prophet, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus Christ is the greater shepherd. Jesus Christ is the greater servant. Jesus Christ is the greater David. Jesus Christ is the greater king. Verse four, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Christ, was to be born. You know, Herod went to the right people. The religious leaders, including the Hebrew, the scholars of the Hebrew scriptures, to ascertain the as close as you could get it, the locale of his rival. Verse five, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and Matthew quotes Micah 5 two, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Should we unhitch the Old Testament from our Christian faith? Absurd. Matthew again takes us back into the Old Testament and covenant theology to alert us to the true identity and work of the King, of Christ. Matthew didn't quote uh, Micah 5.2, and there's a lot to be said, word for word. He didn't quote it word for word, but his use of it is consistent with Micah's meaning of the prophecy. Bethlehem was small, but a big thing happened there. Huge. Huge. God's promised ruler and shepherd was born in Bethlehem to be a blessing to God's people. The chief priests and scribes, they knew God's word. We need to hear this, folks. They knew God's word, but they remain unchanged, unaffected, unmoved, It was as if they didn't care about the central point of Judaism, the Christ, the religious elites, the scholars of God's law should have rejoiced with the wise men. The gospel, the gospel was exploding in full color and the prophecies that they knew all so well were being fulfilled just miles from where they were and yet they were unchanged, unaffected, unmoved. John Calvin said, Matthew intended, I have no doubt, to express their ingratitude in being so entirely broken by the long continuance of their afflictions as to throw away the hope and desire of the grace which had been promised to them. End quote. Do, you, do you understand? Jerusalem was preoccupied with other things. Maybe their suffering, maybe political unrest, maybe Herod's tyrannical rule. With the truth of Old Testament gospel in their minds, why didn't they run to Bethlehem? There seemed to be no draw for them. So so let me ask you a very simple question. Do you rejoice that Jesus Christ is your shepherd king? Or do you merely hear scripture and go about your life unchanged, unaffected, unmoved? My friends, it is possible for you and I to be so preoccupied with earthly things, politics, career, family, success, school, friends, entertainment, religious activity, whatever, that when we hear about the supremacy of Jesus Christ as shepherd king, we remain unchanged, unaffected, unmoved to worship. We hear God's word read, We hear it preached, we hear it taught, and yet we often fail to bow before the royal of royals to worship him with joy and with awe and with thankfulness. Dr. Doriani said, we should take this to heart, my friends, people with knowledge and education are always tempted to rest content in knowledge, but it is never enough to know the truth. If we truly know, we act. If we know who Jesus is, We worship Him. The the, the problem in the church today is not the use of the Old Testament, but that people don't actually understand the Old Testament. The the problem in the church today is, is that many people in church don't know who Jesus really is. Therefore, they don't act. Shallow worship, low moral standards and spiritual indifference in the church are direct results of not knowing who Jesus really is. When we truly know Jesus, we will worship him because his glory triggers worship. His glory triggers worship. A huge problem in evangelical Christianity is ignorance about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the shepherd king. Bad theology always leads to bad doxology because the fervor of our worship is stimulated by the depth of our doctrine. When we truly know Christ, as the Old and New Testaments present him, we bow before him in exultant and reverent and thankful worship. Because though our worship is riddled with problems and imperfect today, we are nonetheless enraptured by the glory of his being. Consider Revelation 7, verse 17, and just worship the king when you hear this. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, it is that lamb, that shepherd, that savior, that Messiah, that Christ, that king who guides you and me to springs of living water, who wipes away our tears, who cares for us in the deepest possible way. Why? Because we belong to him, and he loves us, and he is with us. Why? Why is he with us? To bless us, to be a blessing in knowing him. When you behold his glory in the gospel, you want him to shepherd you. And you want him to align, even if it takes pain to do so, you so crave him to align every last aspect of your life with his will, what the king wants. That's what you want. That's the, that's the heart's desire of a Christian. Fourth, Jesus Christ is king of kings and therefore worthy of your exultant, reverent, and thankful worship. In verse 9, Matthew uses behold once again to draw our attention to the star which rested over the house where the king of kings was. Verse 10 is big. How did the wise man respond to the star? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Dr. Morris described their joy as something like deliriously happy. Deliriously happy. Why? Was an astronomical phenomenon the cause of their delirious happiness? Well, maybe a secondary cause, but the star was simply a sign leading them to the real cause of their joy. Of course they were happy to locate the star again as it led them. Yeah, yes. But only because of where the star led them. To the child. The star escorted them into the presence of the king. Verse 11 explains exactly that. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They didn't worship the star. They didn't give the star gifts. They were finally in the presence of the king of kings, and by God's grace, they fell down. And they worshipped him I think four things are essentially uh, especially rather noteworthy here in this the prominence of the child the wise men's joyful worship the wise men's reverent worship and the wise men's grateful worship first notice how Matthew puts the child first In verse 11, Matthew says, they saw the child with Mary his mother. Verse 13, the child and his mother. Verse 14, the child and his mother. Verse 20, the child and his mother. Verse 21, the child and his mother. The child is prominent. Matthew focuses us on the child. Even the smallest linguistic details exalt the king and put him forward. Matthew is best understood and applied with the royal motif in mind. Second, verse 10, shows that the wise men's worship was exultant, jubilant, joyful. Third, in verse 11, they fell down in worship, which shows their reverence, their respect, their awe for the king of kings. Fourth, this might, I don't know how you'll receive this, but much speculation um, has been offered about gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, Some of it may be good, some of it may be bad. We don't know, but we must be very careful with how we speculate with God's Word. The reality is that Matthew attaches no symbolism to the three gifts. We don't get that in Scripture. John Calvin cautions us about this. He says, Almost all the commentators indulge in speculations about those gifts as denoting the kingdom, priesthood, and burial of Christ. They make gold the symbol of his kingdom, frankincense of his priesthood, and myrrh of his burial. I see no solid ground for such an opinion." So I I think we need to be careful with it. May it have signified those things? Possibly. Matthew just doesn't explain it. He kind of moves on. Here's what I think we can safely conclude. Two things. One, the gifts were expensive and they were appropriate for a king. The gifts dimly reflect the glory and the worthiness of the king, the child king. Two, why would they give him expensive gifts? Because they not only counted the child worthy of the gifts, but they wanted to express their joy in some way. They they wanted to express their reverence, their gratitude, and, and they were thankful to find this child king. And so they gave to him gifts that were worthy of his glory. I think that at least is happening. A quick point the wise men did not visit the child king in the stable. Uh, By the time the Magi got there, likely months or even years had passed. Some think that Jesus was uh, two years old when they finally got to him. So I think that Christmas folklore often distracts people from the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Dr. Doriani helps us see the point of this famous historical narrative. He writes, The Magi were pagans serving a pagan king, yet God spoke to them, for that is what he does. Christianity is not a religion for good people. It is for sinners who listen when God calls. The magi remind us that God seeks sinners. What is the point of this? So, so how are you responding to the gospel that God has made plain to you? How are you responding? Are you listening to the gospel given to you in the Old and the New Testaments and responding with exultant and with reverent and with thankful worship? If you're truly a good person, think about this, if you're truly a good person, in your heart of hearts, deep down you're a good person, the gospel is not for you. You'll find it irrelevant and unnecessary. See, the gospel is for pagans. The gospel is for idolaters and adulterers and liars and murderers and thieves and cheaters. The gospel is for sinners who listen to God's call in the gospel and who respond with faith by bowing before the king in exultant, reverent, and thankful worship, giving him gifts, the gifts of their their total allegiance, their total submission, their total obedience, because he is worthy as king. If if you're coming in here with a sordid past, the gospel is right for you. You should be hearing this. If your past is like mine, just filled with bad stuff, then the gospel is for you. This is meant to be a blessing for you. If you've got it all together, if you're a good person, then this gospel is not for you. But if you are a sinner, then this passage tells you something about how God seeks out even pagans from a distant land and brings them by his sovereign grace into the presence of the king to be transformed, to worship, Fifth and last, really get this now. God sovereignly protected Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, until the cross to secure the blessing of salvation for the nations for their everlasting worship. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God supernaturally directed the Magi away from Herod so that they would not contribute to Herod's sadistic plot against the Christ child. This is God working. God protected the child king. Herod would die. He would die as the child king continued to rise in power and glory. God protects everything every last detail of his plan of redemption. Jesus would not be executed by Herod. Jesus would not be stoned by zealous and angry Jewish leaders. He would not die of some special cause or natural cause. No, God protected the child king. He protected the teenage king. He protected the young adult king until the king reached the cross where God poured out his just wrath upon the king who bore the penalty of the broken law, who bore the penalty of the broken covenant for his people from the nations, and he died so that they would be blessed by his royal, eternal presence and provision. God is speaking to you right now His people, through His Word. His divine special revelation. In other words, the Bible. The 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And He's telling you about the glories of the shepherd king. So that what? So that you worship Him. That you respond in worship. My point is, Jesus Christ is King of kings. And therefore worthy of your exultant, reverent, and thankful worship. So I want to challenge you with just two simple things. Two simple things. First, commit yourself to go deeper into the gospel in the Old and New Testaments. To see the glory of Jesus Christ, the King, there. Go deeper. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 say this, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So brothers and sisters, don't settle for surface level theology or knowledge. True and fervent worship is fueled by a deep knowledge of God. So crave deep. Rich, robust theology that you see and experience the depths of the glory of the king. And then let what you learn, the deeper you go, move you to deeper and purer and more passionate worship. Don't psych yourself out if you're not a scholar or anything. Forget about all that. How can you go deeper into the Old Testament and the New Testament to see the glories of Jesus clearer? And if you go on that journey, the deeper you get, it's just going to fuel your worship. And that's what God is after, you, your heart, your worship. Second, as you delve into Scripture and encounter the depths of the glory of the King, as God in the Spirit helps you uh, make connections throughout all of Scripture, just revealing to you the King, respond by bowing yourself before the King in worship giving him all-encompassing and glad-hearted allegiance and submission and obedience. Know what the king demands of you by knowing his word, and then set yourself to do all of it with joy and reverence and thankfulness because you esteem the king worthy. Hold nothing back from him. Reserve absolutely nothing. Give him all simply because he is worthy is worthy as the king of kings and just so you know my heart this is my aim in my preaching ministry one tell you of the glories of christ the king so that two the spirit works through the preached word to prostrate you before him in exultant reverent and thankful worship when the gospel moves you to worship oh my dear friends Oh, nations, listen. This is for you. You will be blessed beyond measure. Beyond measure. The blessing of the king is for the nations. Aren't we the nations? Aren't we Gentiles? The gospel came to us to be a blessing. Let's make sure that we get the gospel to as many people from the nations as possible.